Welcome to today's Triple Z. The Triple Z Podcast is a daily program that you can use to help you fall asleep each night. Just turn down the volume, lay back, relax, and enjoy as you fall asleep. Spa of the Desert is a Western novel by W.C. Tuttle, first published in 1931. The story follows the life of Tom Layton, a cowboy who has been wrongly accused of murder and is on the run from the law. Tom finds himself in the desert, where he meets a young girl named Sard, who has also been abandoned in the wilderness. Together, they struggle to survive and make a life for themselves in the harsh and unforgiving landscape. As Tom and Sard build a life together, they encounter a variety of challenges and obstacles, including dangerous animals, hostile weather, and unfriendly neighbors. But through it all, they remain steadfast and determined, relying on their own ingenuity and strength to survive. Over time, Tom begins to realize that he has developed strong feelings for Sard, but he knows that their relationship is complicated by their circumstances and the dangers of the desert. As the story unfolds, Tom must confront his past and face the consequences of his actions while also fighting to protect the life he has built with Sard. If you enjoy our program, please be sure to write us a review on your podcast platform and share us with a friend. You both might sleep just a little better at night. Our website is triple Z, that's three Z's media. You can also like and share our content on Facebook or our Instagram account ZZZ Media Podcast. Music for today's episode was provided by the Sleep Channel on Spotify. Chapter 1 The Mojave Indians have a legend of the Calico Mountains and their origin. According to their beliefs, the Great Spirit finished the big task of making the world at this spot. The desert was the final work of the Great Spirit, and he was much pleased, but in his arms he held a big jumble of rocks, sand, and pigments, which were left from the great work. The world was all made and very good to look upon, so he had no place for this extra material. To get rid of it he simply dropped it at his feet in a mass, and the many hued pigments spilled over it until the hole was as a bright hued piece of cloth. Thus, according to the Indians, was formed these mountains, which are but a jumble of barren rocks, rising sheer from the level desert, scourged through the centuries by the desert sun, wind and sand an unfading proof that, unlike man, the great spirit painted deeper than the surface. But with all their gaudy colors in the sun, these mountains, at night, are black silhouettes, which appear to be without breadth or thickness or broken into misty, hazy, unreal piles in the moonlight. On all sides the desert stretches away to the haze of nothingness a land of the mirage, scenes which the jealous desert steals from arid lands and holds up to the eyes of desert men to lure them on. Cities, rivers, lakes, with cool, nodding palms, rippling brooks, which seem only a few feet away, then fade out to show a waste of dust-gray mesquite, which rattles in the hot winds, Joshua trees, with their agonized arms and sand. Always the sand. 
On a rocky plateau of this painted range stood a town-once of adobe shacks, paved with the solid rock of the mountain. Even the houses were tinted with fantastic colors, where the clay had been mixed with the muck of the silver mines. At the upper end of the street the cliffs arose sheer for several hundred feet, like gaudy drapes of calico. At the lower end was a succession of broken ledges, which sloped off to the desert, where the winding trails came in from the rest of the world. To the left of the town was a deep, rocky gorge, so grotesque in formation that it did not appear to be a work of nature. There were natural stone bridges, caves, barriers unreal in color and design, as though a child-minded giant had modeled them in colored clay and left them to harden in the blistering sun. This was the residence section of Calico Town and was known as Sunshine Alley. Just below where the alley opened onto the desert, on a slight rise of ground, full in the glare of the sun and with no protection from the ever-sifting sand, was the graveyard, which was known as Hell's Depot. Not a blade of grass, not even a spray of sage grew here. The ground was a mass of small stones, seemingly laid close together like tiles, but showing patterns and colors that would put any man-made mosaic to shame. One foot deep was the limit of the graves, as the rock below that depth was glass like flint, but what the graves lacked in depth was made up in height. The mounds of rock were piled until one might believe that the corpse had been of gigantic proportions or that the sexton wished to preclude any chance of the dead coming back in material form. Such was Calico in the early 50s, when men were gold and silver mad. A town of 3,500 population, a population which lived in caves, hollow places in Sunshine Alley, or picked a corner in the rock and builded a rock barrier around them. This gave a roofless dwelling, but rain did not come to Calico, so there was no need for roofs. Water was worth more than whiskey, and morals were as scarce as orchids. Just now a funeral was in progress, or rather, had been in progress. The corpse was there in the rough casket, the grave was dug and the pallbearers stood aside, reverently holding their hats in their hands. Clustered around was a cosmopolitan mining camp audience. Frock-coated, tall-hatted gamblers rubbed elbows with muckstained miners. Calico-clad wives of miners, children, dogs, and even a group of burrows poked onto the flat to add their faces to the mournful proceedings. Up the desert trail came two men in a lively packed burrow, all of them gray with the dust and heat. The one who led the caravan was a mighty, weather-beaten man with a long, white beard. In appearance, he might have been a saint. Surely he could not be a sinner with the eyes of a dreamer, the nose of a prophet and the beard of a saint, but nature does queer things to disappoint students of physiognomy. The other man was also tall. His face showed him to be about 30 years of age, a face seemingly hewed from stone, although handsome in its stern mold. His hair was black and he wore it low between his cheek and ear. There was the free, easy swing to his walk, like the half-lope of a desert wolf. 
The patriarch halted the caravan on the trail just short of the street end and gazed across at the funeral. The younger man glanced over there with little show of interest. Duke, the old man jerked his head toward the graveyard. I reckon they're planting somebody. Let's me and you go over. They left their burrow on the trail and crossed over, attracting little attention. The crowd seemed to be waiting for someone. Two men were standing near the grave, talking earnestly. Suddenly one of them looked up and saw the newcomers. He walked abruptly away from his companion and halted a few feet from the white-bearded man. Podner, by your whiskers you're a preacher, are ya? The bearded one's right hand came up and slowly stroked the white mass of hair which hung nearly to his waistline. By my beard, nodded the old man slowly, which neither affirmed nor denied in fact, but seemed to bring joy to the heart of his questioner, who turned on his heel, facing the crowd. Folks, we're playing in luck. The funeral will proceed just like nothing happened extraordinary. Just a moment, partner, said the bearded one, what happens to be the matter? Not a damn thing, laughed the man. We needed a preacher awful bad you showed up. There you are. Have you no preacher? We did have. Yes, sir. We sure had a Reglar one, and he was plumb tidy and slick on funerals, yes, sir. But he forgot himself complete like last night when he loaded there wasn't no honest rules of averages, which gives him small cards all the time, while he's all get nothing smaller than kings up in ten deals. Hmm, the white-bearded one almost smiled. Where is this poker-playing preacher now? Well, hell's delight, grunted the other. He's in the casket. We plumb forgot that he couldn't say his own oration. That's where you comes in handy, like a gun in a boot. The patriarch's head turned slightly and his eyes flashed to the face of his companion who was regarding him with stony countenance, although the eyes twitched slightly at the outer corners, a sure sign that Duke Steele was greatly amused. The bearded one crossed to the grave and looked down at the rough coffin while the audience moved in closer. A burrow braved raucously and two more of the long-eared beasts added their brazen throats to the racket. A miner heaved a rock against the ribs of the nearest beast and the animal clattered away for a few jumps, looking back solemnly, sadly. Friends, the bearded man's voice was deep and musical as he lifted his bare head and let his eyes travel around the assemblage, friends, I have been asked to say a few words over the mortal remains of one of God's anointed, a man who has labored in this land of sin and sinners that the gospel might be brought home to you all. He was fearless in his righteousness, a died friend and spiritual counselor. He is with you no more except in spirit, but his many good works will live long after his name has been forgotten. I can see him now a bulwark of strength to the weak, a solace to the suffering and a friend to all mankind. I can see him dash. Wait a moment, Parson, 
interrupted the man who had asked the period one to deliver the sermon. He stepped forward, hat in hand, clearing his throat apologetically. I ain't no hand to stop a feller from saying what he thinks, but did you know preacher Bill Bushnell? The old man shook his head. No, I did not know him, friend. I didn't reckon you did, parson. We did. I believe in saying everything good you can fare a dead man, but there ain't no use of you lying to us about preacher Bill. The old man glanced down at the coffin, lifted his head slowly and nodded. If the Lord is willing, I will take back what I said about him and start all over again. Wasn't he your minister? Did he not labor among you? He preached, admitted a bearded miner seriously, and added when he was sober enough. He owed everybody in Calico, and if he left any good works he sure had him cashed where nobody'll ever find him. The bearded man nodded slowly and cleared his throat. Under those conditions, friends, I suppose I might as well keep away from personalities and stick to the ordinary burial service. Has anyone Bible? The assemblage looked at each other and back at the bearded one. Preacher Bill had one once, stayed a frock-coated gambler. I didn't know what he'd done with it. If you're a preacher, where's your Bible? The bearded one glanced quickly at the gambler and held out his hand. Let me have a deck of cards, will you? Cards, queried the gambler, I have no cards. Then you are no better healed than I am, partner. I have no Bible, you have no cards. He leaned down and placed a hand on the rough casket. Preacher Bill, I wish I had known you well enough to have something to say about you. No doubt you were a hard drinker, of very little value to any community, and showed poor judgment in objecting audibly against a run of bad poker luck, but no man can live through childhood and well into life's narrow span without doing some good leaving somebody better for having known you. Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Goodbye, Preacher Bill. The bearded man straightened up and looked at the crowd. Friends, I ask you to try and remember the good things he has done and forget the bad. We are all children of circumstance. The Bible says, the Son of Man goeth as it is written of him. Whether or not this means that our destiny is all written out in the good book, I do not know. Perhaps poor preacher Bill merely traveled according to what had been written of him powerless to do otherwise. Shall we say that he was unfit? I think that is all I can say. Parson, one of the miners stepped out of the crowd and held out his hand to the old man. If you start a church here, I'll sure as hell go to hear you preach. The old man smiled sadly shook hands with several of the miners and turned back to where Duke Steele stood. They looked closely at each other, turned and went back to their burrow without a word, while the mortal remains of preacher Bill Bushnell were lowered one foot deep into Hell's Depot and piled high with heavy stones. The saint, said Duke Steele, as they plodded toward the street, 
I wonder what will be said over your remains? The old man turned his head and glanced back toward the group at the cemetery. I wonder, Duke. Perhaps I shall be lucky enough to have my funeral oration spoken by a man who did not know me any better than I knew Preacher Bill. Will he say, this is Paget Le Saint, or will he say the saint? I wonder. Still, what should I care, Duke? Damn little difference it makes, after a man's dead, not a Duke Steele. True as gospel, Duke. Life is the only thing that interests me, death I know nothing about nor care. And the saint spoke truly when he said he did not care, for the saint was a fatalist, a gambler, who staked his life against other men's gold. Just as surely as Kidd and Morgan were pirates of the seas, the saint was a pirate of the desert, whose appearance belied his calling. Men seemed to speak softly in his presence, as though awed by the majesty of his face and great white beard. Oaths never passed his lips and no man had ever seen him take a drink of liquor. He censured no man for doing evil, and his open philosophy of life fitted in well with the rough lands of the West. No man, except Duke Steele, knew the real business of the saint, and he knew only because they were of a kind. Duke Steele was a gunman, a killer, a gambler, and he, alone, knew that the saint was all of these. An old wolf in the raiment of a sheep, as resourceful and dangerous as an old wolf, and with the brain of a Solomon. But no man, not excepting Duke Steele, knew anything more about the saint than they had observed from contact with him, for he confided in no man. He had wandered much, and at times would mention distant parts of the country. Names seemed to interest him greatly names of men. It was as though he was always searching for a certain name, which he could only remember by hearing it spoken. Duke Steele wondered at times if the saint was not just a trifle insane. For he was a strange personality at times, given to brooding, violence, turning in a flash to extreme kindness and good humor. He often spoke his own name as though mocking himself. But of his ancestry, his early life, he made no mention. Duke Steele had been one of his gang in a raid on the Cohees mines, which had been skillfully planned and executed, and without the loss of a man. Three weeks before the saint's outfit had boasted of twelve men, where the other ten were now could only be told by a bunch of Apaches who ambushed them beyond the Colorado. The saint and Duke Steele were the only ones to escape. The plunder of the Cohees mining camp had been taken by the Indians and the saint and Steele were forced to be content with saving their lives and one burrow. But Steele was an optimist and the saint did not care for money. It meant nothing to him. Men believed him insane at times because of his total disregard for wealth. He would nurse a sick man with all the tenderness of a woman or kill a malcontent with the cold-bloodedness of a tiger. But travel, he must. His eyes ever turned toward the hills as though he was wondering what was on the other side. A prospector had told them of Calico 
and to Calico they had come with not a drop of water nor a crumb of food left. The Lord must be looking out for us, observed Duke Steele as they herded their burrow up the main street. Fate, corrected the saint. The Lord has nothing to do with this place, Duke. It looks like the devil might have located it, did one or two assessments, and relinquished it on account of the heat. A man crossed the street ahead of them and the saint stopped him with the question, Friend, can you tell us where we may find lodging? Lodging? The man parroted the word. There ain't a hotel in Calico. Better see Sleet, I reckon. Since Preacher Bill got killed, there's a vacant hole in Sunshine Alley, and maybe it can rent it from Sleet. And who is Sleet? asked the saint. Who? The man looked curiously at them. You must be strangers in this part of the country if you don't know who Sleet is. He's the big man around here. Owns the Silver Bar Saloon over there and owns the California at Cactus City. Owns the Lady Slipper and the Nolan Mines, which are the biggest producers here. Sleet was one of the original locators and he sure does own this town, why betcha. He owns the hole you spoke about, queried Steele. Yep, owns most all the alley. You just ask for Silver Sleet over at the Silver Bar Saloon. S funny and never heard of Silver Sleet. No doubt, nodded the saint. Our sources of information appear very lax and not apprising us of this great personage. Still, it is never too late to meet the great. We both thank you, friend. The saint turned the burrow toward the front of the silver bar saloon while their informant shuffled his feet in the gravel street and wondered whether or not the old patriarch was making fun of him. The saint was not over 50 years of age, but looked 70. Silver Sleeve was a giant of a man with a great black beard which grew almost to his eyes, eyes that reflected a greenish light like the sheen of jade. He wore his hair long after the fashion of the time and his clothes were a trifle extreme but befitted his occupation and position as the richest and most powerful man in the country. The law had never penetrated the Calico Hills, so Silver Sleed set himself up as judge and arbiter from which there was no appeal. In all cases which did not directly or indirectly affect himself or his interests, he was fair in his decisions. The Silver Bar Saloon was not a pretentious place, being one story high, built of adobe, but it was the largest building in Calico. The floor space was about 40 feet wide by 60 feet deep, which was taken up by a long bar, gambling layouts, and a dance floor. It was the only saloon in Calico, which was conclusive evidence that Sleet owned the town. Calico spoke many languages, but among this polyglot of tongues, only one, Luyan, spoke Chinese. Sleet did not like Chinese, so he limited the camp to Luyan, who was a very good lonely yesum. Louis was so old that he claimed to remember the time when Ruby Hill was nothing but a hole in the ground 
old and very wise, after his own fashion. But no man may rule a community without assistance. Sweet surrounded himself with a few trusted men who were paid for doing certain things without asking the why and wherefore, men who might be undesirable to a village of God-fearing folk, but passing unnoticed in Calico, where, according to the parlance of Sunshine Alley, everything went except the cook stove and one joint of pipe. Just now Sleed was standing with his back to the bar, in the saloon, his eyes squinted, as though in deep thought. Beside him stood a slender, dark-featured man, dressed in the habiliments of the professional gambler. His black eyes were sullen and shifty, and his long fingers moved nervously at his sides as he flashed a sidewise glance at Sleed. That's your idea of a square deal, is it, Sleed? Sleed turned his head and looked coldly at the gambler. Exalt, this ain't no deal. You killed Preacher Bill because, well, not because he said you dealt a crooked game, but because you was jealous. Jealous, hell, snapped Alt. He said Dash. I know what he said, interrupted Sleed coldly. He gave you the chance you wanted, Alt. Preacher Bill was a dirty old bum and his tongue was against him, but he was educated in luck. He was smart and he was learning her a lot of things. She liked him. And because I protected my honor against his lying tongue, I've got to leave the camp, eh? Query all sarcastically. Honor? Sleeve laughed into his beard. Honor? Good God. When did a tin horn like you get any honor? Alt's face went a trifle darker and he lifted his hands to a level with his waist. You travel Mui pronto, snapped Sleed. Better go north, Alt, so you won't have any reason even to pass Calico Town again. Think so, snapped Alt. His right hand flashed up from under his coat. From across the room came the jarring thud of a pistol shot, and Alt jerked back, firing his pistol a foot over Sleet's head. For a moment Alt's eyes shifted around the room as he grasped at the bar for support, half turned toward the door and fell sprawling. One of Sleet's men came slowly across the room, pistol in hand, watching Alt closely. Sleet's expression had not changed. Quick work. Loper, he said softly. Loper nodded and shoved his gun back into its holster. Just then the Saint and Duke Steele came into the door. Sleeve looked at them indifferently and motioned for some more men to assist in carrying Alt's body out of the place. The Saint and Steele stood aside and watched the men file out. Silver Sleed, asked Steele. Sleeve looked at him for a moment, glanced toward the door as he nodded. Some of the men who had been at the graveyard were coming in, looking curiously back at the men carrying Azalt. We're looking for a place to live in, said Steele. A man told us to see Silver Sleet. Yeah? Sleet squinted at the saint and back to Steele. Whatcha going to do in Calico? 
You didn't expect an answer to that, did you? Asked Steele with a smile. Sleet grunted softly. One of the men from the graveyard stepped in and spoke to Sleet. The graveyard's a preacher, Sleet. He said a few things for Preacher Bill and they was damn well said after he got put right. Sleet looked at the saint curiously and found the saint looking straight at him. Something in that glance seemed to bother Sleet. It was as though this tall, white-bearded, hawk-eyed man was peering into things that Sleet did not want anyone to see. Sleet glanced down at the floor for a moment and nodded. I reckon there's places to live in. You can have Preacher Bill's place or you can have Dash. Sleet looked up and glanced toward the door Dash. I think you can have the place where Ace Holt lived. We both thank you, sir. The saint's voice boomed like the deep notes of a pipe organ. Sleet glanced quickly at him and saw that the saint's eyes were closed as though he had shut out material things while he thought deeply. I'll show him the places, Sleet. It was the miner who had offered to come to church in case the saint would do the preaching. Sleet nodded and turned back to the bar, but he watched the three men go out of the door. Loper, who are them two men? He asked. I dunno. Loper shook his head. Find out. Sleet turned back to the bar and called for whiskey. For some unknown reason he was worried. The killing of Alt amounted to nothing. He discarded that as a possible reason for his unrest. Was it the white-bearded man? Sleet scowled at his glass of liquor for a moment and placed it back on the bar untasted. Chapter 2 The saint and steel found that there was little choice between the two dwellings, but they selected the one made vacant by the death of Preacher Bill. It was a roofless, windowless, rock hut about ten feet square, built in an angle of the canyon which supplied two of the walls. An open fireplace was used for cooking and the utensils were either placed on rock shelves or on the ground. Preacher Bill's blankets were still spread from his last night's sleep, but the larder was empty. I reckon you can get along, said their guide. I'm Jim Cates, but most everybody calls me Micah. As I said before, if you start preaching, I'm going to have a front seat. He started away, but turned back. Say, if you get a call to speak over the remains of Azalt, I can tell you a few things to make your oration easier. All was crooked as a snake in a cactus patch. He never dash. Micah Cade stopped talking and cleared his throat. A girl had come up near the doorway and was looking at them. She was about 20 years of age, fairly well-dressed. A pair of big, brown eyes, misty with tears, looked at them from a cameo-like face, which was framed in a mass of brown hair. Her cheeks were streaked with tear marks and her lips quivered as she looked around. Then she turned, without a word, and disappeared around the canyon wall. Sleet's daughter, said Kate softly. Her name is Nola, 
But Sleet said she was his luck so many times that everybody calls her luck. Been crying, said Steele wonderingly. Ah. Uh, Mebby didn't see her down to Hell's Depot. She was there. I reckon she was the only one to care about Preacher Bill. You see, Sheen had no chance to learn book teachings until Preacher Bill took to learning her. He was educated a lot, and she sure wanted to learn. Steele nodded. She's a mighty pretty girl, Kate's. And another thing, said Kate softly, you don't want to have nothing to do with her. Sleet's a killer, where luck's concerned. Meb, that's one reason why I'll got a ticket for the depot. Just let her alone and don't cross Silver Sleet, and you'll get along here. What did you say your names was? The saint held out his hand and Kate shook hands with him, flinching from the crushing grip of the saint's hand. We both thank you, Micah Cates, boomed the saint. If I preach in Calico Town, I shall deem it a pleasure to see you in the front row. Micah Cates bobbed his head and hurried away. He flexed his right hand and shook his head. My God, I never knowed a preacher with a grip like that Nosser. I didn't find out their names and undongate if I'd ever ask any man twice. Cates climbed back up the rocky trail to the street where he met Loper. Where did they hole up? Asked Loper. Preacher Bill's place. Ask him their names, Micah? Ibetcha, I did. What names did they give you? Micah Cates glanced back down the trail, wiped the perspiration off his brow with the back of his hand. They ain't given away names, I reckon. You asked him, didn't you? Snapped Loper angrily. I betcha, I did. Meb, they didn't hear me, I dunno. Loper hitched up his belt and strode back to the street. It was very hot and he had no desire to climb down into Sunshine Alley and argue about names. Chapter 3 We've got a home, said Duke Steele dubiously as he leaned against the rough stone doorway, squinting in the reflected light from the desert sun, but when we got there the cupboard was bare. Yes, nodded the saint, but how long have we fasted, Duke? Since breakfast. He pointed at the hills above them, dotted with tunnels, where a host of men drove into the bowels of the earth. Came the dull jar of blasting, the rattle of falling rock from the ever-growing dumps. Men are toiling up there, Duke, while down on the street another group of non-toilers are planning to get the fruits of that labor without toil. You and I do not toil. Therefore, we must use our brains to devise ways and means to get the necessary provender. Just about how, queried Duke. The saint unrolled some of his meager belongings on the stone floor, and in the center of it all was a small package. The saint picked this up and got to his feet. Duke, it has been seldom that I have had to stoop to their use, but when I am forced to such an extremity, they never fail. Meaning what, smiled Duke. 
The saint unrolled the small package and held in his hand two halves of a walnut, empty of all meat, and polished to a mahogany finish. In one of the house was a polished black object about the size of a garden pea. The tools of a cheap gambler, said the saint, studying Duke's dubious expression. Yet one must be dexterous and have the courage of his calling. Where does the game come in? asked Duke. The saint knelt down on a blanket, smoothed it out and placed the two shells open side down. He slipped the black pea under one of the shells, and with a rapid twist of his hand and fingers, shuffled the shells for a moment. Which one is it under, Duke? he asked. Duke indicated the one and the saint lifted the shell. There was no pea under it. The saint repeated the process slower this time, and Duke Steele was willing to bet his neck on picking the right shell, but he was mistaken. Is it under the other shell, Saint? He asked. That is hardly a fair question, Duke. Just supposing I had opened my game and a better had picked the other shell. Would it be good policy to have the pea under that shell? In our financial condition, we cannot afford to take any great chances, and I know of no smaller chances of losing than by operating the two little walnut shells. Duke nodded shortly. I reckon that's right, Saint. Looks to me like Sleet has this place under his thumb. I suppose he's got every gunman working for him, which makes it a poor place for us. The Saint placed the two shells in his pocket and came to the doorway. The setting sun slanted against the expanse of Ruby Hill bringing out a myriad of colors until the whole land seemed to be a vast drop curtain of fantastic shades. The voices of men drifted down to them as clear-cut as the tinkling of bells. The rasp of a pick, the clank of hammer on steel seemed to come from the air above them and at no great distance. And like the dimming of a great light, the sun moved its rays swiftly up the side of the mountain, leaving in its track a misty softness almost as blue as moonlight. Blast after blast seemed to jar the world as the last shots of the afternoon were fired. A few moments later, like ants coming from their burrows, the men came from their tunnels and down the steep hillside, while from Sunshine Alley the supper fires sent up long, straight streamers of smoke to signal them home. Men will always toil, said the saint as though talking to himself. Toil day after day until their span of life is done, and after them their sons will take up the toil and carry it on. And what does it all mean? Will the work that these men are doing amount to anything in the final scheme of things? Will the sweat of their brows and the calluses on their hands mean anything? Is there a reason for things, I wonder, Duke? He turned and put his hand on Steele's shoulder. I have no conscience, no morals. I have killed, like the wolf kills, and yet I have no fear of death, only wonder. I have studied men from the frozen north to the tropics. I know their different breeds, languages, customs. I have seen a Cree chief die, and I have seen the passing of a Yaqui brave.
I have seen the mystery of the unknown come into the eyes of a learned man, and I have held the wrist of the dying degenerate. They all die alike, Duke. Never have I seen a man who did not fight against the death, and I have never seen one pass into the borderland with a smile of welcome. Always that mystery. Sometimes I wonder if death is a punishment. The fear of death is punishment to most men, no matter who they are. A minister of the gospel fights against the hand of death as strongly as the worst sinner ever bred, and why? The hereafter is a mystery life is just as great a mystery. Duke nodded, solemnly. I reckon you're right, Saint. I kinda feel sorry for Sleet's girl. The saint looked down at the rocky floor and smiled at his gray beard. Life is no mystery to youth, and you are only thirty years of age, Duke. But don't feel sorry for Sleet's girl. In the first place, she is Sleet's girl. In the second place, you are Duke Steele. Duke swung away from the doorway and looked up the hill toward the town. He turned and looked at the saint. I, I reckon you're right, saint. I kind of forgot.